0: Nick, welcome back to Temps Century. Thanks for joining us on the channel again.
1: Thanks for having me back. Delighted to be here.
0: So the last time we were talking, we were rudely interrupted by a, a technical error, a technical fault, uh, which meant that you were kind of talking about the uh, Tornado's defensive techniques and tactics and the way the airplane could protect itself about from being bounced by enemy fighters. And that had transitioned naturally into a conversation about low level. And then you had just referenced your time flying the Tornado in Iraq in the late 90s and early 2000s as part of the no-fly zone missions that were being flown at that time. Um and so that's where I'd like to pick up again if if we can. But before we did that, I did want to ask you a little bit about the the learning points that had come out of Operation Granby, which was the RAF's name for Desert Storm and Desert Shield in 1991, when the RAF had lost a, a number of tornadoes and they'd shifted from the low altitude um, option to a medium altitude option. And at the time you were going through training to become a frontline tornado pilot, um, that wasn't too distant from when that operation had taken place. So what was being said in, in the crew and what what sort of tactics had changed? What what were what, what the learning points that had come out of Operation Granby and, and were being implemented when you were going through the program?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when I went through um, the weapons conversion unit in 97, they were still teaching us um, legacy ballistic weapons. So we were trained on the three 4,000-pounder, retarded 1,000-pounder, cluster bombs, and even still JP-233. And obviously one of the limitations of j p two three three is that you have to fly straight and level for a given period of time whilst the submunitions the dispense and obviously in a low level environment over a heavily defended airfield that's hazardous to your health so it didn't really impact us being trained on the weapon so we still we still had that training um uh, i think more than anything it was the how predictability could be really, you know, a bad thing. So if you're number eight in the train, following the same ground track, go figure they know where you're coming from and where you're going to, so they can have um, the the triple A dialed into the right altitude and the right place, and, and you're going to walk it through all of that. Um, but as for as for the the syllabus, really, I don't remember much being said in that regard. I think it, the syllabus that we were taught was very much um, a means to an end. So it, it taught us the delivery profiles um, and, you know, how to plan for those weapons, how to achieve the over-target separation that you needed to avoid being fragged by the the weapons for the guy in front, uh, things like that. So, but we did have quite a few of the instructors who had served uh, in Op Granby and, you know, I, I then went on to serve my first tour on a 617 Squadron, the Dambusters, <clears throat> one of the flight commanders had been hit by a SAM, Uh, he was doing a medium level attack and he was towards the end of the train I can't remember if he was hit by an SA-2 or an SA-3. They got away with it, but uh, with the uh, battle damage inspection that was carried out, I think uh, the the senior supervisor that did the inspection said, wouldn't count on getting thrust reverse on landing because the back end of the aircraft had been well peppered. the fragmentation from the warhead detonation of PEP at the back end, you know, the, all the um, thrust reverse buckets, the tailor-ons and things like that. So, um, uh, yeah, that, that's the kind of the big takeaway. Uh, I think, yeah, just the understanding the limitations of the syllabus, but I don't think that much had changed, honestly. Lessons identified probably were carried over into the, the tactics manual or the what was called the QEM at the time, which conventional weapons employment manual that kind of had the lessons identified, distilled down. But I think they recognized, okay, for the ab initio coming through, let's keep it simple. We'll produce a defined product, which the frontline can then go on and mold.
0: So tell us a bit then about the – I'd like to come back to to the – Sort of the nuts and bolts of flying the tornado later if that's okay. We awesome. we kind of we, we started talking about uh, triple TE and and you talked a little bit about the the mechanics of the aeroplane and some of the systems in the airplane and it would be good. it's kind of a weird. Way to do it, but it would be good to hear about flying the airplane and and, and your time on operations, yep. and then maybe come back and explore in detail some of the components like the TFR and and yep. um, you know the weapons delivery system and and a bit more about how you how you work with the nav to get bombs on target. Um, but for the moment, then can we just stick with talking about taking the airplane on operations? Um, before we hit record again this time, I, I was talking to you about the fact I I was talking to J P um, Peters, uh, John Peters, who who was flying. Um, his first combat mission in, in Desert Storm when he was shot down, I think it was on the 17th. Um, and you'd said that you'd had a flight commander who had also been shot down. Um, and he had sort of given you a briefing on the sort of, you know, the, the being captured part of that experience. Um, and I, I just wondered um, how you approach that. So if you're going to go into combat and there's the possibility you may end up on the ground, you may end up being captured – is that something that you actually spend time embracing in the sense that you think about it and you you figure it out in your mind, or is that something that actually you push to the back of your mind and say, I'll deal with that when I get to it?
1: Personally speaking, and it's not something I really heard anybody else talk about, I just wanted to make sure I knew my kit. So um, the, the survival radio that we carried, making sure I knew how to access... The, you know, the frequencies to turn the beacon on, things like that. Um, we had a GPS in the combat survival waistcoat that we were wearing, just making sure you knew how to operate that stuff. Because I figured that if, if you had a bad enough day that you'd had a Martin Baker let down into um, hostile territory, the last thing you needed to be um, concerned about is how to work the kit. And certainly I think that's pretty widely promulgated as a lesson identified from conflicts past and, and the debrief points from people who've, who've ejected. You must know your kit. So I took that kind of stuff fairly seriously. And um, I would have a play with the um, with the G handheld GPS and, and the radios, you know, go and talk to our life support guys. We call them squippers in the Royal Air Force, but go and have a talk to them and, and say, oh, can I take one of the radios out the back and just have a have a play with it? So, um so I took that kind of thing fairly, fairly seriously. Um, honestly, when it came to the first trip, generally for of any of the opt detachments, and I did quite a few, some before the second Gulf War, and some over um, over Iraq, dealing with you know a counterinsurgency. Generally, the, before the first flight, not necessarily the greatest night's sleep you ever had, but once once you get into the flow of things, you settle down and go, yeah, I know this, and and I think maybe before the first mission, you're just aware of. OK, there's lots of stuff I need to remember you know, from your induction briefs um, you know, the the spins, which are the special instructions, including the combat search and rescue ones. There's a lot sort of bouncing around your head. But having having kind of um, done the work, I think it just gives you confidence in your kit. And I think that's the way to go. Um, I'm sure we'll kind of come on to it later. But, you know, I did have to eject. And, um, you know, after all those years of doing the parachute drills and, effectively chair flying an ejection i just did what i've been trained and it worked so um that's i think that's the key to success uh, you know you hear stories about unfortunately the um scott O'Grady shoot down you know he'd been shot down he comes running out to the helicopter waving his gun and you know unfortunately he wasn't shot by the See, our crew picking him up because they go, "Okay, he—he uh, he looks like he's wearing U.S. Air Force uniform, and he's smiling, so we're not going to shoot him." So, but, you know, that's a, an example of how not to do it. He got away with it; that's fine. But I just figure you need to do—you need to do what what's expected of you—and you become predictable and, and less of a threat. So, yeah.
0: just just give us a little bit of detail then, in terms of what you were flying. So, so um, Iraqi Freedom was March nineteenth, two thousand and three. Were you flying? um before that or during that
1: so so i i flew my first operational detachment out of um in in 1998 in in sort of january of 98 alas i didn't cross paths with star baby uh what a great guy and uh, he's a tough act to follow on this channel um but yeah that was my first detachment. um so we were doing basically reconnaissance um interestingly that was not not a job that we trained for much in in the uk uh, and it was medium level so we were flying with what was called the Vicon pod at the time. It's wet film, um, op, just standard optical camera. Um, and and the way this system worked is that that we could uh, either fly directly overhead head a target or with a uh, a certain amount of standoff with the pod looking sixty degrees or forty degrees. So best best kind of resolution generally was either a sixty or or a vert and. Um, and the software would take care of that sort of standoff. And it, I think it, the origins of the software from were from the GR1A the, the tactical reconnaissance um, version of the tornado. So just to spin it back ever so slightly, the interesting thing was that before doing that, my combat ready workup or mission um, mission qualification training, I think the USAF call it, um, had none of that. All the training we did was high intensity war fighting, you know, um, member of a four ship against a radar threat or you know 2v1 low level you know it was none of it was was this this stuff um that we were doing at medium level interestingly you know one of the aspects of that um that we didn't have the pods back in the uk so most of the pods were in in theater we had maybe one or two um back in the uk and they went to the squadron that was next preparing to go on detachment but actually it it worked most of the um, the mechanics of flying a recce run from the front seat was just about a, a, acquiring a track. Uh, and we were used to doing that for, by flying the TFR, so the terrain following radar um, guidance cues and then just keeping the wings level. So the slightly different techniques were um, you keep the wings level because obviously that affects the where the pod is pointing. In, and if you need to make any sort of lateral adjustment, you just stomp on the rudder to effectively skid the aircraft. Uh, onto track if, if if you needed to if the wind changed or or for whatever reason you got an indication that you weren't exactly on track so from and from the back seat a lot of it was really once you'd done the planning it was about starting the tape at the right place pressing an event marker at the right place and then um, and then switching the camera off when the run was completed so we, we'd start the run with a you know maybe 10 miles to run or something like that and if it's a point target you maybe event at one mile or or mm-hmm. event at at zero miles to the the point of interest and then switch the camera off and if it was a line search which we would try and do we try and join the dots then you'd hit event markers as you passed the particular points of interest Um, then they might have been like at five three and one nautical miles to go to this notional point of interest you just hit event marker um in the back to cue the uh the rig that's the recon intelligence center and the photographic interpreters there to as to where to look Uh, on the on the film so i know it sounds slightly unusual to say the least that we didn't do much in the way of training before going on ops but i think the attitude really was well if you can do this high intensity stuff this other stuff is a breeze and actually yeah it was um it was a non-event for the most part um we were well protected um certainly northern watch as i'm sure to star baby would testify is a pretty small aor we had a lot of protection. We, we went in the AOR for very long and, and it just only worked out. So the the way we flew the missions, we'd have, um, make, if we were dispatching a four ship, one and three would be doing the recce runs and two and four would be flying cross cover for them. So obviously the people on the recce runs are fairly predictable and their eyes in, uh, making sure they're flying the, the track that, that's required or operating the, uh, the recce pod. But for two and four, the idea is to be stepped um, above and, and laterally displaced, looking through the, the aircraft doing the run to make sure that there's nothing coming up directly beneath them, because you can't weave or clear any dead zones when you're flying the run. So we were there really as, as as cross cover. So yeah, that's pretty much how the how the um, the detachment worked. I mean, I think you know Star Babies covered it pretty much. Get airborne out of Inchilic, maybe 45 minute transit to the AOR. Um, before entering the air, um there while we take uh, take on some gas, and um, and then and then the whole mission. By the time we finished it, was probably two and a half hours, something like that. That was a pretty much a, a solid trend for what I see in my logbook. Um, before you know, heading back to Instruct, uh, we didn't need to refuel on the way home. So,
0: what what were you photographing?
1: So, generally speaking, it was areas of interest that if there were changes would signify a change in posture from um, Saddam Hussein's army you know obviously we were there to protect the Kurds or that was what we were there for we we're flying over northern Iraq right? so that that's the deal and they figured if if there, were, if there was any change in posture that maybe barracks would show um, an absence of equipment or uh, material that would say okay well if it's gone from there where has it gone um, so yeah we were doing that um, and that was really the main thing looking for change um, and of course you know if there's if there was um, a threat reaction from you know um, Saddam's army air force or whatever that that you know under the ROE of self-defense the inherent right to self-defense then various other things could could happen you know be it you know the OCA uh, shooting down attempts to uh interdict us or you know shoot at us or lock us up then they could do something about that and if we were locked up by a sam then again we had cjs or and prowlers to provide jamming support or um you know a, a harm shot
0: did Did you get any any um activity from the surface-to-air missiles i mean in terms of you know not necessarily being locked up but but search radar or acquisition radars
1: i think there was some search radar and obviously height finding type stuff which you'd expect from an IADS. Um, I don't remember being locked up. I think one of the things that we had to be mindful of is the ambiguities um, between certain other transmitters and, and, you know, fire control radars. So, so that your reaction was appropriate. So, you know, obviously, if you call defending in an area of um, that's known to produce ambiguities, then, you know, that could lead to a, um, a response from coalition aircraft, which was inappropriate. So, but other than that, I don't, I don't remember really uh, much going on from from the atmospherics that I saw in the mass briefs. So, for example, if if we were flying on a Tuesday, the mass if you were the, one of the, the lead crew, then you would go to the mass brief on the Monday that was looking at, OK, what's the big picture? Where where, where are the points of interest? Um, how are we going to orientate ourselves? Where are the caps going to be? Things like that. The The kind of the vibe I picked up from the Eagles, it was a very routine. For them, I think the challenge really being to try and stay on your game and avoid being predictable and 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 treat each each mission as like, okay, today could be the day something happens. How how do you how do you fight that complacency? Hmm. So uh, other than um, other than that, I don't remember there being much, much going on. And and every now and again, we did because we did depend on on certain elements of Turkish infrastructure, data links and things like that. If they were conducting Turkish special missions, then they would pull the link on us, and and it would be a down day. Sometimes it would happen at short notice. Sometimes we'd know the day before. Um, so that that could also happen. But generally speaking, it was fairly uneventful.
0: One of the, um, I suppose, one of the sort of unwritten rules from my point of view around this channel is to is to not really sort of stray into the topic of politics. Um, but uh, I have to ask it's well known it's documented and i've heard it many times before from guys flying out of inchuluk that there would be those down days so that the turks could take off and bomb the kurds the very very people that this was ostensibly set up to protect uh, yeah did did you how did how did that impact you did did you know did you have a moment um where you felt you know what's the point in doing this if if you know they're going to just Switch everything off, tell us we can't fly and go and, and go and kill these people anyway. Or, or do, again, do you distance yourself from that? Is that part of being a professional military man that you yeah. don't get involved in the politics?
1: I think, generally speaking, the irony wasn't lost on us, but there was nothing we could do to affect it. So. Yeah, I think generally speaking, well that is what you said at the end, uh, we we distanced ourselves from it. it, it seems completely perverse that that was what was going on. Um, but I think the briefings that we received from our staff put us in the picture in terms of what we would call the poll mill, the political military situation and how the politics of the area um, played out and yeah, I mean, we don't know. We we never found out, OK, this is what the Turks then subsequently went on and did. And I guess we just had to accept that it was a down day. And, and obviously, that was that was pretty nice to, to get a down day. I mean, everyone was very professional about, you know, before flying, you know, not uh, partaking of alcohol and things like that. But it was nice because it was an established base. Um, if we knew that there was a down day for for everyone, it was nice. Or especially if it, if it happened at short notice, it was nice to go to the bar and see other coalition aircrew there and um and enjoy enjoy a beer with them, especially unexpected, because people are so so careful about it the rest of the time. So uh, yeah, I mean that, that that was the thing. Just to kind of spell it out, really, it, when we were at Inchilick, we were lucky to be. In the um, BOQs, that's the air crew. We were in the BOQs, but our ground crew were not. So, you know, just shout out for the ground crew because they were in fairly well-established tent city, but nonetheless, you know, they were in field conditions whilst we were in in BOQs, and yet they still delivered the, you know, the jets, and you know that they were really on the case doing the business. I think so. Shout out to them, uh, you know, whilst we we're in the BOQs.
0: You mentioned Star Baby and um, his his time on the channel which has been significant and substantial um or good um uh, and also his time flying northern watch but he did relate i think in one of the the last episodes we did um the ref guys who set fire to the trees in the quad um, i remember the story you remember the story but you weren't there for that okay i wonder whether or not you had been there no the not,
1: time, not so. me i mean the thing is about in terms of the commitment in northern watch then there were various fleets that took it or forces that took it. So at one stage, um, the Harrier force were out there, the Jaguar force were also out there, and then and then the Tornado force took it. So, for example, you know, in the tenth City, the Harrier engineer set up a bar that was called the Hover Inn. Now, they obviously, you know, alluded to the aircraft, but then when we were there, somebody just, you know, butchered the sign and, and it was called the Horny Vine. So they just ripped the letters out and just moved it around. But various different, you know, why the line? I mean, you know, it's just um, you know, playing anagrams. But um, yeah, we had different forces that have been there. So the Jags have been there as well, doing 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 the same job. Um, bottom line. And as to why, I think it might have been to do with Bosnia, maybe, or just commitments in other areas that the tornado force was a lot bigger than either the Harrier Force or Jaguar Force. So so we, we kind of took it on and and whilst there was the Northern Watch commitment, there was also Southern Watch going on out of Saudi Arabia, out of Al-Khaj. So, you know, being a, a much bigger force, we were able to cover both. And at, eventually at one stage, we were flying out of Inchalik doing Northern Watch, Southern Watch um, out of both Al-Khaj and out of um, Ali al salem in Kuwait. The difference being that I've, neither the Turks nor the Saudis would allow offensive weaponry to be to be carried. So all the um, offensive weaponry was based out with those countries. So, QA allowed us to carry carry bombs, which is why we were constrained flying Northern Southern Watch to doing just recce and, and seed counters, um, you know, as a self protection and, and an OCA again, self protection, because you're only going to fire if you're fired upon or, you know, engaged in some other way. Um, so, yeah, at one stage we had uh, squadrons in, in three locations, all doing maybe half squadron detachments. Flying over Iraq, so that when I look at my logbook, I did my first deployment in the January. It wasn't very long, to be fair, but then I was back out in August in Al Qaj. So, you know, we had we had lots of comparatively lots of squadrons at that stage, but it was an extremely busy time um, with lots of time out away from home on operations.
0: Did you feel like you had made it? In inverted commas, that that your journey, you know, from having Wanting to do this as a boy, yeah. through the the fast jet training pipeline, all the two holds that you had to go on, yeah, you know the, the training process did, did getting to combat feel as good as you thought it was going to. Did you did it give you a sense of accomplishment?
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's really interesting. I think the the moment I got the um, the Hamlet feeling, the you know light up the cigar, and, um, happened when I was flying out of Ali Al Salem. Um, we were carrying carrying weaponry at that stage so they had this thing called a response option uh, an ro-1 was effectively uh an airborne formation we were sat in a cap we had a pre-survey target which was cleared by uk government and we were waiting for some sort of trigger to happen so if the um the cameo going in from um elsewhere from from you know doing recce or or whatnot out of um out of Al-Khaj or they had um, F-16, I think Block 30s out of um, Ahmed Al-Jaba, which was uh, the, kind of the F-18 base in, uh, in Kuwait at the time. They were carrying iron as well. But if anyone was shot at, locked up, you know, and, it, and effectively tripped the ROE, then the the kind of um, mission commander hosted on the AWACS could say, right, execute. And we were sat in a cap and we, we could go on and, and, and prosecute the target. Now quite often these targets were, you know, minor. I, mean, I struck a KS-19. It's an artillery piece in a heavy caliber, but it was well out, well away from any civilian population. As far as I could tell, looking at the the tape afterwards, it wasn't being manned at the time. But I think, you know, when I landed I was actually leading leading the four ship and I'm not a fours leader, but but it was suitably supervised down there. But it was a it was pretty straightforward mission, a single line uh, attack. And um, you know, my wizard and I put a couple of bombs into one revetment and and basically we had other revetments within the site allocated to other members of the four ship. And and we we dealt with some of these uh, AAA pieces. So so the target was a, a weapon of war. It was triggered by. Uh, an offensive act by the Iraqis at the time, but no civilians were at risk at any at any stage. So I think you know when I landed back from that that mission, especially having landed it, uh, sorry, especially having led it, um, you know I'm, I'm taxiing into the into the HAZ site and um, the, the um, we our, our squinto our squadron intelligence officer she I think she had my camera for whatever reason, and I've got this very grainy photo somewhere of. Of uh, me, just you know, I'm on the chocks, the canopy's open, and just waiting for them to kind of fit the fuel catchers before shutting down, so that we don't dump fuel on the on the surface. And it was that I've done it. You know, um, the nearest thing I can you know uh, ex- explain in terms of an analogy. So imagine being a surgeon, right? And you've you spent all this time training to carry out an operation of some description that's really important, but you've never had a chance to do it you never really answered the question could i keep my cool could i do what was asked of me when it mattered most um and, and yeah to have that that question answered is a, was a big thing um and and you know, that was the only weapon i got off in the end uh, i supported other people and you know i i'm kind of glad i did what was asked of me and as best i know there's no blood on my hands for doing that obviously i was part of other operations where you know damage was done and probably life taken but that i just feel i was i did everything and kept my cool and did what was asked me when it mattered most
0: had you thought about that much then the idea that you would um uh, you know take the life of, of another person is that something you had given thought to
1: it's it's funny because when when you're talking about target sets at home you know home-based training you might say okay what's the target is well soft skin vehicles troops in the open and things like that it and it's very easy to become distanced from from the reality i think targeting pods make it a lot more personal and, and i'm sure people have seen various predator and reaper cam footage where it's really apparent what you know what's going on at that stage we were flying with a tile pod resolution You know wasn't that great i mean i think we would have been able to see if there'd been anybody there at the time but it just it does provide that sort of standoff and that that detachment um and i just yeah i think that kind of contemplation is is probably best saved for time on your own and and maybe after the event in the end it doesn't change the job we have to do uh i guess all we can do is be meticulous with the you know following the rules of engagement especially when it comes to collateral damage stuff or or, um, blue on blue that's the sort of stuff that would haunt you for for the rest of your life I think I guess you know if you put the uniform on you know they're doing their job I'm doing mine somebody's going to come out second best potentially so um, beyond that I didn't I didn't really trouble myself too much with it but yeah, I think if you start to think, well, they had a mum and a dad, you know, I think it would be a lot harder. Um, you know, and, and I would just, you know, say really for the soldiers on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, those those guys and girls, you know, they deserve full respect for for what they did. Because I think it's a lot harder what they did is very up close and personal. I think we had an easy ride of it, honestly. <sighs>
0: Your, um, you know, I know that you you have a family. I won't discuss that. That's that's for you to tell people about if you want to. But but how do you have that conversation with with your family? So. Again, you know this isn't a million miles from when you know tornadoes felt like they were dropping like flies in, in the early you know days of, of Desert Storm or at Granby, and um, presumably your your wife would have been aware of the dangers of what you were doing as a as a profession in peacetime um, but did you, are, you, are you able to sit down and have a conversation with her about you know how, how, how to manage anxiety or fear about you getting shot down when you go and deploy on on operations? Yeah.
1: So I got married after my first frontline tour and I was coming to the end of my tech weapons tour as an instructor when I got married. Um so she didn't have to deal with me flying over um Iraqi held territory when Saddam Hussein was ruling things. Um I would say it I think we was felt confident that if we flew smart that things w- would be fine. Um I think I would you know pay tribute to my mum and dad because they never bothered me or burdened me with their worries um i wish i would perhaps been a bit more mindful of their you know natural parental anxiety um and i i've, I've since kind of gone back to them and said look, hey, i, I just went off and, and did it and i perhaps didn't really think about how how it would have been for you back home um i, I just explained to them that i thought i could control the risk and uh, and that it was fine but you know at the stage that Was the stage before FaceTime, before video calls, and we had like a phone card, so we were able to, to call home from a, a cubicle. Uh, maybe I think we had 10 or 15 minutes a week, which at the time was less than a prisoner was allowed, and it caused a bit of a stir. Um, but you know, I can remember when I when I all called home and, and called mum and dad, you know, mum was just absolutely over the moon, um, about you know having the call and you know just you, know, obviously you can't talk about operational stuff but you can talk about the banalities of life outside of the flying and you know what's the flying final like? oh, Yeah, it's good you know having getting lots of hours and yeah, it's, it's fun and we're going to the gym and we're you know popping into town occasionally whatever it is you can talk about but I never really had that awareness of what it was like for them so uh, that's my parents but as far as you know my wife I think it was it's tough for them because and tough in a way that it's hard for us as aviators to fully fully appreciate because you know we know the risks you know but as to what nightmares they entertain when we're away it's really kind of hard to say because I can remember I went on operations not long after one of the kids was born um um, I suppose it doesn't really matter but it was maybe four weeks after um I think it was my son was born and um you know you kind of you come back and and um new routines have been established anyone who's a parent you know know that um having a good routine is is key and um you know but I've been away so really I I come in and come back home and need to try and fit in with the with the household routine so my wife was uh is the daughter of a uh, an engineer one officer a geF engineer so she she was really up about it and um yeah all credit and again so I, I think it's important to recognize all the families of people on operations because they just kind of soldier on back home with with a, a place setting missing at the table and, and things like that and taking care of when the the car blows up or the um the fridge breaks and all that sort of stuff um and yeah generally you know take care of it without bothering you know, disturbing people in operations too much. So, yeah, all credit to them.
0: When you got back then from this first deployment, um, what did you do next? Did, did you go at the end? Because you said you flew uh, with the 617 Squadron, I think you said four years you were there.
1: I was, yeah, there three years, uh, three which years. is pretty much a standard first tour, yeah.
0: Okay, so so did you come back from that, just carry on flying con- continuity training in the UK and then yeah. go back on operations again?
1: yeah um very much so um we'll we'll touch on maritime i guess at some stage but um i can remember while having looked through the logbook recently that that i come back and yeah the flying back in the uk was about getting back up to speed with what we call btrs that's basic training requirements so that you know with the the tornado being a swept wing aircraft you have to do so many swept approaches you know and there's weaponeering stuff for, for NATO declarations getting so many attack profiles done for a given delivery and yeah just kind of getting back to it and that was the, that was kind of the irony is that okay we're doing we're doing this stuff on operations but there was quite a clear dividing line to what we did when we came home and, and that was really again more orientated towards a high intensity you know high intensity war so I think there was honestly quite a bit of inertia in the training syllabi that we followed and of course other people new people arriving on the squadron they need workups and you know so you might be making up um, a four ship for somebody's training objectives as part of their mission qualification training
0: so so who was who was the threat in this scenario then or what was the threat i mean you know when i visited um us air force squadrons they they usually talk about you know flanker b um 10 AA 11 that's the kind of you know the standard threat they're going to go up against what was what was the standard threat you were going up against in, in your scenarios
1: scenarios back home um hmm. would have been uh mig 23 um you know flogger uh generally Aether bravo uh, mirage three magic two sorry not, uh, mirage f1 magic two stuff like stuff like that and again you know it's i think there was again a fair amount of inertia to the to the threats it's difficult for for us to replicate at the time to replicate things like um mid-29 because we just didn't have any platforms that could that could do that the most agile opponent we could fly against was the hawk out of 100 squadron so that was great i mean the hawk was challenging to spot as a much smaller aircraft it could certainly outrate us so that that kind of brought brought challenges of its own but in terms of radar threat the only people we could really train against was the um you know the colleagues at lucas or leeming flying the tornado f3 so you know Sometimes it was just blue versus blue. You know, they had their training objectives. We had ours. Um, sometimes they would um, simulate some stuff for us. But generally speaking, or it might be run one would be them simulating red air and run two, then they're going to be their best blue air. So, yeah, I think, you know, that and the surface sets were generally single digit Warsaw packed SAMs with a, uh, a smattering of the French export um, mm. systems that were also on the market at the time.
0: Things like Roland and Kratol, that kind exactly.
1: of yeah, yeah, okay. exactly,
0: yeah, exactly. The the tornado. Well, I suppose it's not specifically the tornado, but the tornado is the platform that I've often heard talked about in this context. It apparently, had a very good raw, um, you know, very capable in terms of its ability to identify mm. threat systems, and and it's unclassified. It's in the unclassified manuals that it uses NATO code names for the systems, which mm. is a, a different model to some. Um, let's say US Air Force um, rule, so the F-15 rule, for example, might have that for the ground-based threat systems, but it doesn't for air-based threat systems. It uses a, a series of wing forms and and it doesn't differentiate between the MiG-29 right. and the Su-27, for example. You just get different wing form. Um, but was that your experience? Did you feel like from an, uh, an electronic um, support measures or electronic protection point of view that you had a particularly um, capable system in, in the airplane?
1: A couple of um, kind of um, spurs to my answer, really, the first of which is that. The the tornado, especially on the GR4 at the the craters, as it, as it was called, it was the box for the avionics for the RHWR was um, sat right over the top of some hot air piping associated with the environmental control system. So when when the aircraft went from the tornado one to the GR1 to the GR4. It had a, an upgraded and an adapted um, environmental control system, and it was not very reliable. So quite often there was a bleed air shut off valve that had to be replaced. And, um, and if they replaced the valve, the aircraft had to fly once and then they would retork um, some clamps on, on the piping. And that meant that to get access to that piping, the RHWR crate had to be taken out so that it was quite frequent or quite often the case that the aircraft were flying on you know, a home base without an RHWR. Um, so that was suboptimal, shall we say. I mean, other f- fleets, for example, as I understand it, the F3 fleet, you know, it was what they call roll equipment. So it had to be fitted, which you can understand for a, an interceptor doing beyond visual range training and things like that. You have to have an RHWR. Um, it didn't have that same status with us. And I think it was it was a pity. Um, so, but when we had it fitted, yes, um, you know, it was a, a, a good piece of, uh, of equipment. But obviously, it's as good as the uh, the library that's fitted. So, the reality is that coalition platforms radars operate often in the same bandwidth as a threat system. So, there's there's um, room for ambiguity in terms of what it's it's um, displaying to you. So, I think again, um, having SA is key. I mean, I, I did a TLP, so the tactical leadership program. And, uh, you know, I made a schoolboy error. You know, I, I, I got, um, well, my crewmate and I got locked up by by something and, and and it was, I thought it was friendly, but we soaked up um, a semi-active shot without reacting, which is embarrassing, honestly. Um, but it was, you know, it was ambiguous with other stuff. And, and i just kind of gone, oh yeah, after so much ambiguity, you start to lower your guard. But of course the, the antidote to that is, you know, Vandal 1, Spoil, um, bullseye this getting spiked from this direction, and AWACS is a is it's a so defensive call. Should go okay, um, threat bra from you, um, yeah. And you go oh Christ, that that's actually a valid threat. I need to do something about it to to a notch or you know if it's inside a bolt range, then notch, and if not, then try and um, try and retrograde to defeat any missile shot kinematically. So that that's really what you were, what you're up against is um, ambiguity and having bigger picture SA often from AWAX because, you know, we didn't have a PD radar, we didn't have data link.
0: And you mentioned earlier in the same sort of theme as this that you had, you could visit the Spatterdom Electronic Warfare Training Range. Yeah. How, how useful was that? Uh, again, it's, you know, it's public record. They've got an SA-6, I think they've got an SA-8 and mm-hmm. they might have some other um, emulators. But was that a you know going going back to this idea that when you were talking about the low flying whales and sort of great local knowledge becomes a big thing you know mm. is is it the same with that kind of range it's quite a small range there's a limited amount of i guess rep, rep, replication they can do is it the sort of thing where it's useful the first couple of trips but then you kind of get used to know you kind of know what's coming up or you get used to it or do, do they keep you on your toes how, how valuable is that as a training asset i think it's
1: invaluable absolutely you know essential training I think that you know you can do stuff in the sim and that's that's great but um you know just seeing ambiguities crop up or how the angle of arrival can skip around a bit and how do you fly your counter maneuvers based on on that you know organizing your cockpit um yeah it's absolutely priceless I mean they could move the sets around so wherever you you think it it's going to be it you know it's it could be somewhere else I think you know I did quite a lot of um when I became a squadron QFI so like instructor pilot flying the trainer version I would try if I was doing uh, maybe an air fueling introduction sortie we'd go to either spade Adam having tanked and then and go in and try and make all the slots line up and, and and the range would give you tailored training so they you could integrate with the range controller and say okay he will tell you, right, this is target acquisition. This is what target tracker looks like, and this is what missile guidance looks like. So you can do everything from that to a full up, right. We're going to attack a target set in Spade Adam, opposed, and and we'd like these threats. But as to where they are, that's up to you. And they they would they would provide a full spectrum of training uh, from those two kind of um, extremes, uh, if you will. So I just thought it was great, and then afterwards you would get a, a, a post-mission report, and and you could you could see what what they were recording as um, their transmissions, what your reaction was, and you know when you were fully fully swept up, I I like to cue the um, the video to um, the same timeline, so you can see what what they were doing. We didn't have an RHWR playback, so you know we generally would rely on. What was said over the cockpit voice recorder and you could say well okay spike from this direction so if i've got a good good notch then it's simply 90 degrees plus or minus that and you know did i when i went into my aggressive um maneuver was i in the notch at that point if that's what i was trying to achieve mm-hmm. so you could really get into um the nitty-gritty of did you fly enough g did you um you know, hit the limits that you achieve an accurate notch or, or, or stuff like that. So yeah, great facility. Great. Fa- I mean, it is a bit tight on airspace, and I don't know how, especially for medium level things. It's quite, it's quite tricky. And of course, with controlled airspace and airways being next door, you can't just pump chaff out willy nilly. And I think that you know that's an important part of training. It just comes back to habit patterns, doesn't it? You know, you do what you've trained, and 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 um, and if you can't pump the chaff out, you better be touching the button uh so that your, your habit patterns and your motor programs are, are where they need to be um and of course you know that's the beauty of the sim is that you can you can be fangs out you can punch um punch tanks off you can you can employ your defensive aids to the full to the full extent that you you can't do in peacetime with you know the considerations that we've outlined so
0: the, in, you can see in the in the picture behind me there's the storm shadow pod on the wing that's the yeah. jamming pod i know you're not going to talk specifics i'm not going to ask you about those but but just generally was that a good pod could you turn that on and and sort of validate for your own edification that the system worked uh was it something that you could really only use in wartime and therefore you kind of had to rely on the fact that the test guys had, had, had validated it properly
1: um they had training pfm loaded so a PFM being kind of—it's called pre-flight message, but effectively think of it as the counters and whatnot. So obviously, it wasn't broadcasting the trons, as we call them, um, the counters uh, in a peacetime environment around um, Spade Adam or anywhere else. So to to a, a great extent, we did rely on on the trials and the, and the documentation was there for us to look at. Um, yeah, as 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 pods go, you know it, it's it did its job you know single digit sams generally speaking was what it was set up for um you know and the, and you also needed to know how how that interacted with your rhwr that sort of stuff was really important to know um as you know the position of other jamming assets were you know but if if a, a prowler's is pushing out jamming to um affect a particular system go figure it's gonna your rhwr is gonna see that as um as some sort of emission from a threat system but if you know where the cap is you can say okay that that is friendly jamming and i can discount that and i know where i think the the, uh, the sam site is or if, if it's not if it's coming from somewhere else where well, maybe we, we need to take that seriously so yeah a, a, a good pod blighted by some unreliabilities you know we did have the sky shadow too and i think really the what you're up against is that for the clearances on the aircraft, it needed to be the same shape and more or less the same weight. So anything that they changed on the inside could could improve things, but it, it still had to be within that sh- that shape and size. Otherwise, you're you inv- invalidating a lot of the trials that have been done, carriage trials um, that have been done before. So it, there were times when, for example, internal coolant stuff made it a bit unreliable. You know, I think things got better. As they try to work on that, but I'm not sure to what extent. You know, I left the force in 2012. That's when I left the the military. But um, I left the front line in 2009, and at that stage, Afghanistan counterinsurgency that that was the kind of the the focus point. So that the they weren't dealing with radar threats as so much as handheld IR So there was um, um what was it the Durkham you know, uh, and I, I directed infrared countermeasures pod replaced the sky shadow. So it, it, I think it lost the imperative, the moral imperative to be updated. You know, I'm sure that they could fit all sorts of new hardware, solid state, you know, in a computer gizmos inside there. And it would, it, it could be, you know, much more capable. But I think by the time the aircraft came to the end of its service life, the handheld sound was still probably the, the greater threat.
0: Maybe maybe now is a is a good time to talk about the maritime role then. So because because sure. I, I, from from again from our offline conversations, I think you said to me you only did it for a very short period of time, but it was while you were on six one seven squadron. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about the, that just generally, and then and then yeah. any specifics that you're able to share?
1: So uh, the Lost Sea Tornado Wing had the maritime role, and that was taken over from the Buccaneers um, when when they retired. So main difference really between the Tornado and Buccaneer is that the Tornado could only carry two two Seagull missiles. The Buccaneer could carry four. Um, they were able to do that because they could put a fuel tank in their internal bomb bay. So, you know, we were down to half the weapons load for a start in terms of the amount of training that we did. Generally speaking, uh, I understand it was something like 25 percent of our training was supposed to be in the maritime role. It generally coincided with um, naval exercises. Uh, One that was run quite frequently from 97 to to 2000 when I was there was called JMC, the Joint Maritime Course, um, and that was run several times a year. Uh, I did participate in an exercise uh, out of Sigonella in Sicily working in in the Mediterranean. But generally speaking, it was it was kind of UK based and support, the Royal Navy and and other NATO assets. So we didn't we didn't do it that often. I think the thing to highlight at that stage, in terms of the the aircraft, the platform itself, that we uh, the GR1 was not wired up for carrying smart weapons. It had it was really sort of uh, about ballistic weapons, as I've said, like dumb bombs, JP two three three, CBUs, and things like that. So dealing with the carriage of Sea Eagle, it had, it had to have a Sea Eagle control panel fitted. So only certain aircraft had that panel fitted. And if you had that panel fitted, it couldn't have the Vicon Recipod control panel or it couldn't have the tile control panel. So the major step forward really with the GR4 was this aspiration to move away from fleets within fleets. Obviously using the 1553 data bus and so instead of relying on hard hard wiring, you could communicate through the mission computer and, and through through the data bus. So that was one of the limitations. Um, so in terms of. Yeah, the training, as I say, kind of effectively associated with an exercise in terms of mission planning, which, uh, as always, would start with um, uh, an uh, an update as to where where the fleet was and and identification of the critical asset within the fleet. The critical asset tended to be the um, the oiler, so the 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 cargo ship that's going to supply fuel to the other warships in in the package were in the fleet. So the reason obviously for that is generally going to be less well defended in and of itself, uh, not so well armoured and and it's a critical node. So that was typically the sort of thing you might go against. But of course, there could be a naval directive to target um, a different uh, part of the uh, the fleet, you know, whichever vessel was deemed that high value asset. from there, what you've got the challenge is that the 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 fleet is obviously moving in a particular direction and at a particular speed. And generally speaking, for mud moving, you, you well in certainly in the 90s it was um AI, so air interdiction against a fixed target, you knew the location, you plan your route, taking into account surface to air missiles, you know, terrain that you could hide behind, avoiding fighter areas of responsibility, all the sort of standard mud moving stuff. So that initial part would hold good and uh, you would aim to plan a min-risk routing. And if you needed tanker support, clearly you'd go via the tanker before uh, letting down to low level. After that, you get to what was called the the last fixed point. And after that, the the software allowed you to have effectively a floating target, and it would accept into the software that mean line of advance of the fleet. So the fleet's heading west at 10 knots, for, for example and um, when you updated that position it would then continue that rate of progression in the background uh, so from that point the aim of us as a maritime strike asset firing anti-ship missiles is to so- somehow find a way through the picket ships the destroyers or frigates with um, capable anti-aircraft or uh, anti-missile defences be it you know close in weapon systems like um you call it a Gatling gun or or, or regular SAMs, try to find a way through them to concentrate our fire on the high value asset. So the best way to achieve that is effectively fanning out around an arc that's centered on the high value asset. We all fire at the same time, our missiles all arrive at the same time, accepting that some might be shot down by close-in weapon systems, some might malfunction, but some will get through. So you're trying to achieve that salvo compression. So, this is where the third-party queuing came in. Really, um, most of the time, uh, Nimrod MR2 using their uh, their sensors, uh, but it could be um, a Breguet Atlantique or uh, you know any a P3 Orion from from the the Dutch Navy providing what we call SERPICS or surface picture. Effectively, this is a broadcast uh, on a running loop saying, "Okay, this is where the high-value asset is." And they're at the center of like a compass rose. And so from this bearing at this range is this type of ship. And, and, and they, it was a way of describing the disposition of the fleet. So the role of the lead pipe, sorry, the lead crew and specifically the lead navigator, because really a lot of this was hosted in the backseat of the, of the tornado. His role and his decision was to try and choose a line of attack that was going to give the missiles the best chance of getting, getting through and communicating that to the rest of the formation. As a front seater, your main job really is to to fly as low as you can, because uh, you need to try and stay below the radar horizon as long as you can. So uh, fly as low as you can, don't hit the water, maintain cross cover uh, between us in case there's a fighter threat out there, um, and, and try and keep some big picture SA but a lot of it really was hosted hosted in the back seat as they would make their tactical decisions and then put the data and slew the, the attack access to uh, to the best available. So um, so we get to this last fixed point and then if you could imagine the, the formation uh, maybe arriving in cards, so like a pair of aircraft and then behind them a pair, then we might split out. So one and two go um, left and right, three and four, or three will go the same way as one, and the, you end up ar- ar- arcing around the enemy formation of, of ships, and then turning inbound to fire. Um, there was a logic that you could set on, this, on the on the control panel that would um, get the missile to pat- to pick a particular re- um, response or a, a return um, if it saw a cluster of returns, and so there would be some deconfliction on that. So for real, of course, we turn in, hit the range that we wanted to fire at. Uh, and fire our missiles and then obviously turn away. Um, for real, I think we'd be switching radars off and try to minimize our emissions as much as possible uh, because Naval assets are very good at listening out for um, radars, even radars, alts or air-to-air attack or any of that sort of stuff. So we try and make our, uh, our approach as covert as possible, but having fired, then it's simply a case of turning away and let the missiles do their thing. In training, of course, and this was the fun part is you become the missile so we were able to fly a profile that replicated the missile and at a certain range uh, the navigators would turn on the radar a certain scan within a certain range scale and um, the radar marker would say right this is where the Sea Eagle missile was expecting a target and, and you'd follow the logic that was um, set to the control panel and then insert on that particular target so for us in the the front seat the target bars would jump and we would just fly to that so it was quite satisfying having hit the fire point you'd have lost visual with your other formation members but as you close in simulating the missiles you start to see these other jets left and right of you as we all converge um on on the target to work out did you hit would you have targeted the right vessel and and it wasn't easy um you know obviously the, the the ships could be maneuvering I certainly would if I knew there were um you know sea eagles coming in. I'd be you know changing the force disposition as much as I could um so we got to that point and then you'd overfly the target and you know work out yes would it have been a hit or would it not and after that um it became what we called ASMD so anti-ship missile defense training or commonly known as ship dicking. um it was uh it it was fun and this is something the buccaneer guys uh, were really good at um the whole thing they were really good at because they just did a lot more of it than than we were required to at the time so if if you were flying with an ex buccaneer backseater they were really really very good at this uh, this whole mission set um but yeah the, the anti ship missile defense was simply um flying low and fast past uh, the ships and watching them try and turn to uh, bring their weapon systems to bear so it's pretty impressive seeing destroyers you know at flank speed uh, healing over as they try and um try and evade us or at least bring their weapon systems to bear so we would do that for probably five or ten minutes and then and then clear off home um, as, a, as a safety factor uh, to kind of take into account of course um, destroyers and that lot have um, ships, uh, sorry, have helicopters doing um, ASUW or ASW missions uh, and, you know, when you're you're flying in towards the fleet, 150 feet, you're kind of in the, the same piece of sky as um, as those those uh, platforms, so there had to be a safety call to the fleet to say that oh, this is us inbound, so um, slightly artificial, but they would clear it in and by that stage they would have made sure the helicopters were on deck so there was no deconfliction, uh, deconfliction issue at all. Um so yeah, so overall I would say it was a fun mission. I enjoyed it because it was it was dynamic and it, it required some thinking on the feet. Um, mostly in the backseat. And our, our job really, as I say, was trying to follow along to keep the big picture say, going, okay, the feet's like that. I'm coming in from here. Um, uh, and 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 how how is it going to look in terms of the split and rejoin? Um, as part of the training, we had to do the usual slide recce. For uh, ships, but of course, if you're close enough to ID, um, you know, uh, a warship. Okay, it's Warsaw Pact, packed. It's a it's a destroyer. Oh, oh shit! It's got a it's got a pretty capable. It's got maritime SAAs or something like that. You're firmly within the wares at that point. Um, but that was nonetheless part of the training. Um, but yeah, it was it was fun to do. Um, and I'd say it was six one seven and twelve squadrons that were, were assigned that role. <laughs>
0: So, so to be clear then, through, through the process of running in and hitting your final point and uh, targeting the Oyola or whichever ship it was that you were, you were being expected to, to sink, um, where possible, you did that through Datalink then, so you used P3, MR2, whatever it was, to tell you where those ships were, and you weren't using your uh, ground attack radar to locate them in, on the sea surface?
1: It was much more low tech than that it was simply an hf radio broadcast oh. so it was just a, a loop over the radio so we the great thing about the hf and it's not it's not a side to the tornado that's kind of talked about that much it's not that it's classified or anything but you know obviously having long-range radios w- was uh, a, a quite considerable benefit so i can remember being in the has listening to um, uh, a Surpic broadcast from from nimrod which is great because i could I could kind of plot out an initial disposition, just on a, a blank piece of paper with a compass rose on it. Uh, obviously, that's less well advised if you're flying at 100 feet or 150 feet. Um, but yeah, it was—it's really old school over over the radio, HF at long range, and um, you know it may even be a, a VHF, uh, you know closer range. Of course, you'd be subject to. Or the the maritime patrol aircraft would be subject to jamming. Of course, you know they would be doing their best to interfere with that sort of stuff.
0: I'm not. Uh, I really know nothing about sort of surface warfare or or um, anything navy oriented. To be honest with you, but I, I do know that sometimes these fleets uh, are trying to. They're they're under mission control. They don't want to be located electronically. Um, I'd imagine there are other times where they're actually quite happy to broadcast, and they've got everything turned on, and they're looking to make sure no one comes up and sneaks up on them. Um, what would the implications of both of those scenarios to you then? And because and, you, you mentioned Naval Sa Eight, and I would I don't know anything about Sea Eagle, and I you know I know you're not going to talk Rangers. Um, for, for the missile but I, I would have expected that they could outrange you and and so i wonder whether or not you would if they were transmitting and broadcasting and they had everything turned on and you were getting spiked whether or not that meant you probably couldn't prosecute your attack as well or it, you know it meant that uh, you know sort of the risk levels significantly increased because of a technical overmatch um what what can you say about that
1: generally speaking the the sea eagle had a pretty good range so for the single digit maritime sams or the, their equivalent because then the the nomenclature was slightly different I, I can't remember the numbers but like a navalized sa3 was called san something and it was a bigger number um, we could do we could get weapons away before we were inside the engagement zone but typically what you would see is um, the rhwr was pretty quiet running in and then I think they realized when the game was up and after that, you know, there's no point in maintaining MCOM, gaining fire solutions from their own um, weapon system became their priority. <clears throat> in terms of, you know, training with NATO uh, ships, that's where the uh, the ASAC's uh, seeking came in in handy because, you know, by hovering at 5,000 feet or whatever, I'm not sure what else they operated at, but they're extending their radar horizon. They could also be offset or remote from the um, fleet and and um, be emitting, but without compromising the exact location of the fleet. Now, clearly, if we were able to work out where that is, we know it's a helicopter. It can't, it can't be that far from the fleet. But to my knowledge, at the time, I don't remember the Warsaw Pact or, or you know the Soviet Union uh, or Russia indeed having any comparable capability, they were relying on on their masthead radars. Um, so, and I don't know to the extent, you know, that how good their MCON would be or, or the ESM picking up our emissions. I think, you know, training against blue assets, we had to, you know, be at our, on our A game and do our best. Peacetime rules, you couldn't sort of turn off rad alt and things like that, because then effectively you're trying to visually fly down at 100 feet. But, you know, that, that that would be an acceptable risk in wartime. But not in train, not training, not in peacetime. So um, yeah, that's the kind of that's overall my take. We, pretty good weapon, gave us enough standoff. I think if you were talking about navalized SA-10 or you know any of those sort of double digit stuff, then it I think it would become more challenging. And and of course, you know, what's the radar horizon? I, I, I honestly it depends on the mast height of the of the ship. You know, the, what range they could see us. But you know if We'd be doing our best to fire a range that would ensure the PK, but would keep us out of the out of the engagement zone.
0: Did you have to? If it's not a stupid question, did you have to do this for real?
1: No, no. Um, there were a few high seas firings towards the end of the life of the missile, um, but it was it was rare to to even carry it. I mean, there's uh, quite a nice photo out there, open source, of a Nimrod MR2 and two two jets, one from six one seven, one from twelve, both carrying a pair of Sea Eagles um the high seas firing was um i think out to the west of um Ford, that neck of the woods uh we out to the west of the hebrides in one of the danger areas there and they fired um they fired uh, sea eagles into an old destroyer but um i think it's probably as part of an end-to-end weapon system test but it was like rocking horse poo to get a chance to fire um fire sea eagle and i think it was the same with martel which was, as i understand was the predecessor so mm.
0: So it wasn't like um you know if you think of all the air defense scrambles out of Lucas or or Lossy for Russian bears coming trolling the, the British Isles it wasn't like their their fleet their surface vessels did the same sort of thing where they came along and you had to go out there and let them know hey we're here we can that see. would
1: be that would have been very interesting I I've seen you know obviously photos open source of the fleet coming down through the Channel and they would have been shadowed by the Royal Navy some way out and, and and uh you know by either submarines covertly i imagine or you know when it's really obvious then then there'll be a, a frigate operating uh, reasonably close but we never had that opportunity uh that i can recall i think they, you know there would have been opportunity seized but it wasn't in the time that i was there things were pretty quiet the russian navy was in the doldrums when i was there you know i can remember reading the sunday times magazine and and they were showing what a an appalling state the Navy was in and um you know submarines rusting in um in some of the ports people you know got the washing lines out on the submarine they had nowhere to live no barracks. there was just no money so I think uh, you know at the time it wasn't really a credible threat
0: that's twenty five percent of what you were doing on the squadron then yeah. um w- were there any other specific missions specific roles that you were you were training for i, I what well, like, one thing I haven't asked about is whether or not the um the RAF still had a new a tactical nuclear mission at the time or if, if that was something you were doing too
1: um so the when I when I hit the front line the only people doing the strike workup were guys at the um, based at Bruggen so there are four squadrons based there they they were still doing strike workups but QRA had finished um, I think around 88 so quick QRA being quick reaction alert so NATO um, you know, like a um, aircraft dinner has loaded up with live weapons, standing alert, ready to scramble that that sort of thing had finished by the, well before the time I even joined the Air Force. Um, so I think they still did did some of the work up, but the the, the switchology, the the control um, boxes for the strike weapons had gone. I mean, I remember flying one of the treble T airplanes and they still had the BRS I and his bomb release safety. I can't remember what the L is, but yeah, they, they still had the switchology in the back seat, um, but it, yeah, it had been decommissioned, or it was just the legacy equipment. So nobody, nobody did any kind of formal kind of a workup for that, as far as I know, beyond some maybe some initial ground school and a couple of um, singleton missions.
0: You you left a, a comment on one of the YouTube videos on the channel about. And, and I, so I wonder whether or not it was related to that. Maybe it wasn't. But you you left a comment saying that uh, that at points the R A F didn't trust the guys in the front to know everything in case they went rogue. What? So that oh, I right know.
1: No, So so this is kind of more about force culture and more about C R M in terms of operating the Tornado, which I can get to you know, if you, if you like, because it covers a bit of force culture and it's, yeah. So it wasn't related to strike. It was really more about. Um, how was the information displayed how did the how did the team with the crew work together as a team
0: do you can do that now i mean if if, if that if you feel that's an actual place to do it or or if you want we can put it in um towards the end where maybe you, you do some of your uh, reflections on, because I know that there are some other things you want to talk about around thing, things that could have been done better and, and so on and so forth. So it's up, up to you, Nick, whatever feels natural um, to you.
1: Yeah, I think I can just go allude, allude to it briefly briefly here because I think there's the thing to highlight is there was a difference in the way the GR1 was operated to when I returned from my uh, attack weapons tour, my fighter lead-in tour in 2000, 2001. I, I basically say that In my first tour flying the GR1, a lot of it was operated very similar to the the way the Buccaneer was operated, or at least the way I assume it was operated, because I understand that aeroplane had a pretty sketchy INS. A lot of what was done was using map and stopwatch and looking out the window. So the navigators really did navigate, and the front seaters had a didn't even have a low flying chart, as I understand it. We didn't in the in the front seat of the Tornado. So yes, we had um, uh, the a projected map display and it was just a repeater of the back seat so it had a, a low flying chart but no, no track line annotated to it or anything like that. The challenges this brought is that you could be part of a four ship plan and your your job as a, one of the pilots typically would be maybe doing the, the target plan on a, on a, um, a 50 thou map and on a survey map obviously dealing with the detail of the attack but the, the navigators would have been um, sorting out the over target separation and sorting out a min-risk routing and all that sort of stuff and you just don't get to see the route before before the brief so you know you're sat 20 feet away from from the map in the briefing room trying to go okay we're going to go down there down there down there and you know just trying to get the geometry of the of the route in your head because if, if you get bounced or you know threatened you, you need to know the cut short where where can i cut short where am i gonna can i cut across that leg or will i be going through a mes or a peacetime constraint like a glider site or a light airfield, something like that. So it was very much pilots drove. We did the radios on tower, uh, so local ra- local air traffic. We did range primary, but after that, the radios were done in the in the back seat. So like uh, area radar, AWACS, all that sort of stuff. They they would be doing, um, and and it was just kind of hard sometimes to memorize stuff the the big picture essay that what they didn't want is you picking up the map where well, they go you can just ask me i you know at the time felt that the strike eagle approach of everyone has equal access to information as I, as we understood at the time that's the way to go yeah. and that learned behold is the way that pretty much the the tornado went subsequently but what it took was a change in the hardware in the sense that we we instead of this um microfiche map we then got a, a digital display which gave us the the, the route um, depicted on it, and it also gave us what we called the egg, which was if you were on speed and on time, where you would be on the um, on the track line. So if you were trying to rejoin, you just basically sorted a visual intercept on on this egg as it as it marched around the route. And we could also then select other other screens, including uh, latterly the targeting pod. So so the issue really was we don't want everyone eyes in somebody needs to be eyes out and um but what 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 happened was that i think the workload in the backseat just got higher and higher to the point that they had to export some of the work forward some of the monitoring and um and i think that was long overdue honestly um you know and and the culture changed so you know i think the way the way to go was to to kind of train if you're olfing, so that's the 100 foot flying right you are not looking at the map you're flying as low as you dare you've got the steering queue and the head up display you're going to follow that fine um but you're doing that only for as long as you need to because you're threat reacting either ducking to avoid a fighter or trying to terrain mask um against a surface to air missile system or a triple system or something like that so you know you fly at the height that allows you to look around more or OK, what's coming up? Oh, yeah, we said we were going to do our pre-attack checks on that leg or, or something like that. So, yeah, the the, the dynamic change. So when I alluded to my comment is that we weren't trusted to, I think that was the vibe I picked up. They didn't want pilots making autonomous decisions uh, and cutting the nav out of the loop. Now, you'd like to think any um, reasonable professional would not go off making unilateral lateral decisions unless it was time sensitive or um, safety related. Um, so I I think it was I think it spoke more to insecurities I'm sorry to be direct about it to my nav uh, brethren but I think it was more that than um, than anything else and as time went on you know CRM allowed um, allowed us to do more stuff in the in the the front seat like for example that one of the software upgrades allowed us to adjust the steering like step the steering onto another waypoint, which had always been a nav an thing. Don't 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 do that. You know, don't do it without touching, them, but without telling them. But but you know, you could think, okay, we're running late. The demanded ground speed is stupidly fast, and I'm not going to be able to crack that. So I need to, because I've now got my map. I can see. Well, if I just head over to the next waypoint and skip one, I'll be back on time. Brilliant. I can do that. And um, as long as it, I told the guy it will go in the back, then it was going to be fine. So it's just about establishing that that trust and that rapport and whoever's got the highest essay at any given point of time has an opportunity or at least a control available to them to manipulate the mission computer or or um any other subsystem you know to best effect for the crew
0: i, I wonder often about the the atrophying of skills and um, the ability to to do mental arithmetic and stuff while flying and and you talked in part 1 about the fact you would come back from the tornado you went to be an instructor at the the tap weapons course and as your german instructor had had described to you you were you'd become a bit of a hard cripple when your your visual scan had 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 gone away and you had to relearn that um when you're flying in an airplane where actually really all you're doing is just you're you're going towards the where the guy in the back is telling you to go towards and and he's running everything Uh, do do those sort of airmanship skills begin to atrophy because you're just I don't want to. I don't want to sound, make it sound like you're sat there fat, dumb, and happy. Because obviously, you're making sure you don't fly into the ground, and there's various other things you're doing. Mm. But you're not working the radios. You're not doing the nav. You're not working the weapon systems. Um, presumably, he's doing the fuel calculations. Um, you know all those sorts of things. So, so, does that lead to you becoming a lesser pilot as a result? Did did the GR4 and the fact that some of the stuff meant work was transferred back to you mean that you had to up your game again?
1: It's a good question. I think it it could have led to some skill atrophy. I think that the main thing was to recognise when um, the indications in the head-up display were giving you garbage. Let's say, and one of the challenges in particular for um, mud moving was that the, the head-up display in the GR1 did, gave you time early indication, but with um, a, a simple carrot, as it was called. So the carrot in the middle showed that you were on time. And, uh, and full scale to the right was that you were early by 30 seconds or more and to the left late by 30 seconds or more. So there's the, the tornado force lived and died by being on track and on time and, and having a plan that uh, gave timing reference points to either keep you in the right formation or to achieve weapons um, over over target separation was a real core skill for especially lead navigators to um, to come up with. Fast forward to the GR4, we had um, the benefit of a digital uh, output that said, "Right, you're 33 seconds late." So that would have been off scale before, but now you had a um, a real accurate indication of exactly how late you were going to be, and also you had this is your current ground speed, and this is the demanded ground speed to get you to the next waypoint on time. So you let's say your planned um, speed for the ground uh, for that leg was. 420 knots, that's a typical long route speed, and we usually step up in 30 knot increments as we approach the uh, the attack run. If you are flying such that you're on time for the waypoint at 420 knots, you're on track on time and and this other button we had called timeline would say you're on the timeline, but you could be flying 450 knots and time early is saying yes, you're going to get to the next waypoint in time, but the reality is you're behind that egg that that place which represents time timeline zero you're behind it but catching it up so you could make much more informed decisions is that achievable ground speed um if if the answer is yes yeah you just push it up you know five four fifty knots get back on time get to the next waypoint yet yeah, you'll need to then drop back to the planned ground speed of four twenty as you go around the turn Losing speed in the tornado was never, never a problem. You could always do that. <laughs> um, never an issue. But um, if you could see the demand of ground speed was 500 knots, well, you're going, okay, that's that's yes, it's achievable, but it's not really sensible. I'm so far behind. It's better to kind of cut the corner. So the in terms of these skills fade, or the it's kind of recognizing, okay, my head-up display is saying I'm off scale. The backseat did have a bit more information. He could say, "Yeah, we're 31 seconds late." Oh, okay. So, yeah, we're not. It's not horrific. And, and there could be some sort of discussion about, "Well, how about we steer to the next waypoint? Let's see if that's any better." And it just became um, very comm intensive. And I think, as alluded to in part one, really, I think the key thing is making calm, clear, concise, correct, timely. So don't don't talk any more than you need to. I mean, one of the things you you see from some of the Gulf War footage, and it's no disrespect to the to the people involved, they were clearly under a lot of pressure, uh, you know, and and it's no kidding for real. But the phrase "nothing on the RHWR," you know, mate, I can see it, right? You are talking over potentially important inter-flight chat or AWACS broadcast. so you know, maybe in a, you know, I've certainly picked up this, this from the, you know, the Eagle guys that. It really works super hard on having correct, correct comm and they go back through to tapes, uh, making sure you use the correct brevity code where it's the right time on the right frequency. It's just so important because it could, if it's not done well, it can really chip away at, uh, at SA, not only for you, but you could be talking over somebody's defending call on strike primary or something like that.
0: It's a bit of a rabbit hole, but let's go down it quickly then. Um, is Is there... <laughs> an expectation though that it all it all goes to shit when you go to combat for the you know for the first time for real i think um you know all the eagle guys that i i talked to i mean you know hacker Haskin, who's been on this channel you know he said to me he did all this training and then when he got shot at I think it was a roland that shot at him and it was really close and he said his his threat call and and, and all that stuff was just garbage it just was it was none of the things that he was supposed to say it was just it was just terrible even though in peacetime he could do it absolutely yeah, yeah. perfectly and, and and he got shot out a few times by by sam's and i think probably over time you know he didn't get comfortable with it but it, it that that part of things improved but is there is there an expectation then that when you go into combat that, that those things probably will be some of the first things that um don't go according to plan the, the com
1: um i think the harder you work on it in peacetime the less market the deterioration is going to be so it, it, is the guy you're talking about is he a c model guy
0: uh strike eagle.
1: strike eagle right okay yeah. yeah i mean i'm sure they work on it as well um i think The harder you work on it in peacetime, the more embedded the habit patterns are likely to be. But as far as, you know, plan surviving first contact with the enemy, I think one of the key things on, you know, the tornado mud moving planning was the loser plot. So having what happens if, um, you know, one aircraft goes us us being like unserviceable on the ground, for example, or it's an airborne dropout, you know, for whatever reason gets to the push point and it's got a failure that stops them crossing into enemy territory, having a simple, easily understood and executable plan is absolutely key. Knowing what your min force assets like, what's my min OCA that I can accept. So if their tank goes down, I mean, I can remember one uh, one time when um, an eagle blew some tires out on 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 takeoff or landing, and it and it just blocked the runway uh, and stopped other assets getting airborne. So you've got to have a plan that 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 is easily digestible. And you go right, yeah, we've talked about this. If this happens. Then we're going to do that. So that's that's a that's a key thing. Um, so I think that helps with the uh, the the kind of the fog of war, as it were. But I, I think yeah, the rest of it, you know, I don't know to what extent you know when you come back from a, a live shooting war mission. So the stuff I did whilst I got weapons away was it was clear of Gulf War One and Gulf War Two. You know, do you run the tapes and and dissect it to the to the nth degree? From what I've read. About in particular, because I, I I've been interested in the um, the guerrillas. You know, I know their you know campaign in the first Gulf War. You know, they were up against crew rest and things like that. They were flying their asses off. So the last thing you're going to do is dissect every single call and 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 things like that. So I think the answer is they're probably not. I think the discussion point would come up if it had a like a knock on effect, a second order effect. Hmm. Well, did you realise that when you did that, this happened? I, so I yeah. Know.
0: Sorry, I interrupted you.
1: No, no, no. I think, you know, that, that's pretty much it, really. I think as long as it um, doesn't have a major knock-on effect. I think the Tornado Force were very good at improvising when things went wrong. Yeah, and that that was kind of a necessity because the aircraft wasn't particularly reliable. You know, how can we work around this? We didn't have the largest number of assets to train with as well, so how can we, <clears throat> how can we improvise to train for that particular scenario? So improvisation was very much part of um, life in the RAF at that time.
0: I suppose that goes back a little to the question I was asking. So we're still in the rabbit hole. But we'll come back out in a minute, but um, it comes back a little to the question I was asking earlier about lessons learned from from Desert Storm. Um, you know, four or five years prior to you turning up to the to the tornado for your front, front, first frontline tour, and I know exactly the tape you're talking about, where the nav's saying, "Yeah, nothing on the RHWR. Ten seconds to go. Keep going." You know, and he's and he's sort of. Um, it's sort of soothing, it's almost like a soothing thing I don't know I don't know if it's soothing for the pilot or for him you know uh, and he's saying, you know we've got an indication on the right, keep going, whatever you know chaff chaff, chaff and, and 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 there's that whole narration of what's going on so was that then just how they did things then would that have been one of the changes that took place between it happening and you arriving in in, in the tornado world you know, i could- d-
1: I don't think so, I think it's you know simply reflective of the amount of strain and stress the, you know, the individual was under. Um, you know, I can remember reviewing one of my tapes with, uh, it was a Paveway, low-level Paveway 3 simulated attack and uh, flying with a very capable um, backseater. And we ran the tape and it was quiet and, he, and he'd um, done a tour on the Tornado F3 as a backseater there before coming across uh, to the GR. And uh, yeah, it was just really nice and quiet and I just think that's the way to go um you know UCOM has to add value it wasn't really something that was labored on the on the either the conversion unit or on the front line it was perilously easy to transmit on the wrong radio from the GR1 because you had to push down a stalk to select one radio you could simulcast if both stalks were down but if you wanted to make an internal call just within your formation and you had your radio set up to speak on strike primary you'd have to you know oh, I want to talk by just you know reaching in and maybe knowing where the stalks were you just podging the button and, and the spring wasn't great so was that i pushed it down did it come up no i'm not sure and it was easy to commit comms crimes by talking on the wrong radio subsequently on the on the gr4 we had a um a press the transmit switch which allowed it, it was much easier you know press forward for the one radio back for the other uh, and the, to simulcast you you would have to push the transmit switch on the throttle um, because both stalks were down, but the, the, the one on the stick top allowed you to, to to choose the radio, and it was far far better. Um, I think we could have been more rigorous with debriefing comms crimes um, on, on on the fleet. is my, is my opinion. But...
0: Well, what other improvements then to your life as a front seater? Did the the gr4 bring um i was i was interested when you were talking in part one about the recovery procedure from the loft um and you okay. said you know one of the things that you have with the hud is that it moves so quickly you don't really know was that the 10 10- you know, ten degrees or twenty degrees pitch mark or whatever. Yeah. And I think think about the Strike Eagle hard and and you know the fact that it has a, an angled set of pitch ladders that they have a little tick that point towards the horizon. So there are some nice visual cues that you could instantly pick up on. And that I'm I'm not a Strike Eagle pilot, as you know, so that doesn't that doesn't mean that it that, that it that it would be any better in the the situation you're talking about. And then I think about the fact that the Tornado hard has some sort of trend indications in terms of the circles of the little pointer that goes around, so you can kind of sure. see what your rate of acceleration or, or descent is or whatever. Uh, and, and so I think about the differences in um, HUD philosophies and design decisions. But did any of that change with the GR4? What, 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 what came in that made life easier for you?
1: Yes, one thing that really struck me when I returned to the GR4 from, from the Hawk was that there was just so much more information on the HUD. It was a wider angle um, installation in the first place. But i i felt quite saturated with with the information i had come back from legacy instruments you know just looking down at a standard instrument blind flying instrument cluster tacan hsi you know uh, combined uh, fairly limited so all of a sudden there's all this other stuff uh and it was just a bit of um data overload initially but of course you just get better as as you settle in um get back onto the aircraft and you're completing your, your refresher course you get better at picking out the right information at the right time. And and that's, I think that's the balance all aircraft designers and people looking at software upgrades have to strike us like, okay, how much, if, if, computer processing power isn't the issue, how much more information do you want in any given display? And do you want to declutter it sometimes or have the ability to declutter it? Um, so we did see some changes, obviously GR1 to GR4 was a big step change in the amount of information that we could get and generally digitized was better. And and latterly, we got some software features from the Tornado F3, like, um, you might have been alluding to the SCP bars. So um, the SCP bar, if if you're a straight level, and, um, and if you push the throttles forward, the SCP bars would climb. So if you wanted to hold the speed that you were at, you just pitch the um the flight path vector to be a beam the scp bars that's great if you wanted a level acceleration then you can accept you're flying straight and level the scp bars climb as you uh, accelerate but then when you get to the speed that you want to be at all you have to do is reduce the thrust until the scp bars come back a beam um the wings of your flight path vector so it's absolute it's easy peasy for you know weapons um employment, you know, get on speed, and, and and that's the power I need to to sustain that speed. It was brilliant. The origin for those particular indications was in the combat scenario. So <clears throat> if you go into a into a rate fight and you once you've achieved um it, it, if you are flying faster than you wanted to, then you could just make sure your your flight path vector or velocity vector is above the SCP bars. And then when you got to the G and alpha limit coincident, you just park your your flight path vector on those bars and it's going to keep you there and then you then you're on on the ideal you know rate fight to base so yeah that's just an example of the sort of stuff that came in where you know either with the upgrade to the gr4 or on subsequent software um issues
0: that's a uh, that's specific excess power isn't it that's what I sep yeah. stands for okay yeah what about the NAFLI? Because you have got uh, under the under the nose. Is there's the LR, LR, LRMTS?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, as you you've got on the picture behind you the two um, two pods underneath the chin of the aircraft. The the left hand one is the forward looking infrared, and the right hand one is the um, LRMTS. So laser ranging mark target seeker. So um, the the, the LR, LRMTS was on the GR1 as well. And if you look at the nose of a an RAF Jaguar, that was also the kind of chisel nose on the front of that is very similar. So I believe it had the same the same uh, equipment in that. And uh, but the flare was new to the GR4, so it came at the cost of um, of one of the 27 millimeter cannon. Um, but the main the main benefit for it really was I think for the back seated to have a view out the front of the airplane, albeit in the IR range. They they got to see the full head-up display symbology. The the origin of the update itself was to give the tornado a covert low-level ingress capability. So you could put the, the terrain in radar to standby. You could be flying on the night vision goggles, and if, if it was a low illumination night, then you could you could start to use the projection of the flare on the head-up display. And and the the guys in the back could also could also. Um, manipulate target weapons aiming using the FLIR so um I have to say I didn't find the FLIR projection on the head-up display particularly helpful I found it was much better if it was uh, if I called it up on the um multifunction display between my knees the resolution was much much better um there so I would tend to use the NVGs and then with a quick glance down to the FLIR to what I could see there if I needed it and the HOTAS functionality allowed you to cycle through the different uh tv screens uh or the different display options on that on that screen um so yeah i I mean to just unpack the lrmts a little bit uh it was the primary height sensor as far as the, the the weapons instructors were concerned for the tornado what it offered you with solving your bombing triangle. So effectively, that is a trigon- trigonometric calculation. If you know the depression angle of the, the laser head and the range of the target, you can solve your height above the target, which is something the airplane needs to know for the um, accurate release of weapons. If if you don't have the right height above target, your weapons will either go short if you're lower than you think you are, or they'll go long if you're higher because the aircraft. The, the weapons will just fly further before they hit the ground. The the issue was that it wasn't ice safe. So there's only certain ranges that we could train with that system and and only certain targets and certain lines of attack that we could we could do it because of backscattering of laser energy and stuff like that. So with those limitations and the fact that it wasn't day to day mission critical equipment, we if it didn't work, it was one of those things. Our laser doesn't work again. Okay, we, we will accept it and carry it as a fault or something like that um but you know in terms of certainly on the gl1 solving your height channel problems that was the way to do it you know uh, an attack run from the back seat on a radar significant target was called a phase one attack and if the laser was working the laser was going to be boresighted to the uh, radar and you solve your bombing triangle your height sensors everything is is taken care of and and, um, and you're well away but if you if you can't use that, you're then falling back on a barometric height sensor or using the rad alt. If if the target was a sea level target, or you're at the same elevation as it, or um, using some air to ground ranging from the uh, the GMR, all of which were the higher the dive angle, the more sketchy they became, and it, it never something they fully got to grips with with the software issues, unfortunately, as far as as far as I saw. Um, having GPS, the advent of GPS, the aircraft knew where it was in 3D space, uh, knew that it had, had a terrain database around uh, around it. And, and um, if you knew the target elevation, then it, you, it again, it, it solved the, the whole bombing triangle passively. But by that stage, of course, we were into um, precision guided weapons. But the other side to the LRMTS that was, was really useful is uh, target acquisition. Really... Uh, In low-level CAS, high-threat, close air support, you have, as I think they're seeing over Ukraine, you have to hit the target first time, there's no room for re-attacks, and if a a, a forward air controller can put a laser spot on the target, that just, especially with employing dumb weapons, gives you an opportunity to acquire the target for that 1st run attack, otherwise you're relying on uh, a, a verbal description, which is just so much more difficult. Uh, and to, to kind of then be able to acquire the target in enough time to overlay the weapons symbology, maybe um, adjust the aim point, fire a height sensor like the laser, uh, and achieve a set successful weapons release parameter. But but the, the LRMTS would have made that just so much more achievable in a high-threat close air support situation with dumb weapons.
0: You mentioned um, Ukraine, So so here's a ridiculous hypothetical then. So... If if we were just at the point now um, of retiring the the tornado, we we uh, we aren't. We retired it years ago. But if we were just at the point of doing it, would it make a suitable platform for Ukrainian and Su twenty four pilots to come over and do some training on? Uh, you know, there's a question, of course, at the moment about the F sixteen and the US apparently has, has said in principle yes, but you know we haven't seen it yet. There are some NATO countries who fly the F sixteen who are saying they'll do the training the ukrainians are saying they've been flying flight simulators high fidelity flight study simulators to to, to get ahead of the curve a little um could you do the same with the tornado or is it just um you know too complicated to do in the same sort of time frame as you could do a, a 4.5 gen glass cockpit jet
1: yeah i think um i think it would be feasible just as a just kind of initial take on it i mainly because the, I think the, the fence of the Su-24 is a similar sort of generation to um, to the Tornado. Obviously, the main difference is that the fence has got a side-by-side seating arrangement, so you, there'd be some adjustment to a tandem seating arrangement. I think the main thing that the Tornado would bring to the party is, um, is Legacy Brimstone or some of the other um, smart weapons. Uh, how aware are you of, of the Brimstone weapon system overall?
0: I've I've been to I've been to um, 41 Squadron at um, Coningsby, and they show me the videos yeah. of it, so yeah. I'm familiar with it. Yeah.
1: Okay, so uh, for, for I guess for the viewers, then uh, think of it as like a um, Hellfire-sized missile, roughly um, something looking similar to that. That's got its own seeker and some um, algorithms that can help it to identify military targets, broadly speaking, and it was designed for a Cold War scenario. Which we thought never going to happen. Where were we ever going to get the rules of engagement to employ this, you know, semi-smart weapon that's going to make its own engagement uh, decisions? Um, but they did use it in Libya. There was one attack uh, that I know of that, that used the legacy Brimstone against them—a um, a tank park, as far as I know. And I don't know the, how effective it was. Um, I knew one of the, the backseaters who was a weapons instructor who got seconded t- to do that, uh, do that attack. But that particular weapon system. Would be ideal because you don't have to overfly the target. You could get to an engagement range, fire fire the weapons off in a mode that allows it to search for a column of tanks or um, a frontage of tanks, and and it's going to make those uh, autonomous engagement decisions without the crew having to overfly it. Now it's not a massive standoff, but it's still better than overflying to drop dumb dumb weapons. Yeah. Um, and so I think you know the Tornado would offer would offer that. Um, obviously, the, anything above very low level is highly contested airspace. And so the airframe limitations are likely to be similar to the, um, to the what the fencer uh, is, uh, is experiencing. And the footage that I've seen open sources, those guys are right down on the deck. Hmm. And, and they need to be. There's nowhere to hide. It's, it, it seems to be fairly flat terrain-wise. So in terms of platform survivability, it, it would be similar. But I think the, the weapon systems like the Brimstone would be ideal for dealing with you know, uh, support to frontline troops and things like
0: that. I think we, we we've definitely gone off the beaten track now. But I think we <laughs> I think we gave them uh, brim, the the first generation brimstone. I think they were launching them from cargo containers and things like that. But, um, wow. So so because they were you know, and I think there was even sort of a milk van or something or some kind of vehicle that was disguised as a milk float, and then they were sort of dropping the ramp and shooting them. Uh, wow. From there, and I think they were, I think they were striking shipborne uh, ship targets with with them or sea sea targets or something like that. But okay. this was anyway, this is a while back. So, okay, that's interesting. So, so um, there was one thing that you mentioned. Then, so you talked about fifteen fifty three data database, and I I wonder whether or not that was the aim the the GR one A, and then you got seventeen sixty four the GR four, or whether or not GR four was fifteen fifty three.
1: I think I did a quick look at uh, this and I seem to remember at 1553 and then just the open source stuff that i would looked at just this morning to remind myself so that I didn't embarrass myself. It, it said 1553. So that's my recollection of it. Of it. Uh, and that obviously does allow interaction between the um, the crew and the avionics and, and the smart weapon that's underneath the airplane. So that, yeah, that was a major step forward. You know, it got got around. The requirement to have a control panel for a particular for, for, for every single weapon there was still a targeting pod control panel and things like that but um it did um, obviate that need um and so you could put coordinates in, into a weapon read the back and adjust them and, and and obviously when you get onto paveway four you could change other weapons few settings impact angles all sorts of other stuff that you can do with um with paveway four so um yeah it was a, it was a major step forward really.
0: And it's interesting to hear then your your thoughts on the naphlia because I I had I just assumed it was something that would have parity with the system that the strike use. uses where uh, I think those guys um feel fairly comforted by being able to look through the hard and, and see a, a pretty good picture. Um there's some slight parallax error I understand yeah. that's a bit odd. Um but you know certainly certainly a system that I think is fairly well regarded. But um were you uh, alone in in not being that impressed with the representation in the HUD, was that a uh, general sense?
1: I am not sure. Um, I just know. I mean, I did do the manual um, low flying on MVGs, and I just found that the important thing is to get the HUD brightness set correctly to be able to see the background through the MVGs without gaining it up, gaining the goggles back. So if the if the symbology is too bright, the goggles are going. Oh, this is too much, and you can't see the terrain and the the texture and the obstructions, most importantly, so clearly behind. So I found that when you had to use a different part of the projection system, as I recall, to, to project the, the floor image onto the um, onto the head-up display combiner glass, and it just wasn't it just wasn't all that. I, I found, yeah, by far my preference was to look on the um, on the screen below. I mean, the the thing the other time it worked really well was in in poor visibility, so like dust or haze, you could see through that. But fog, no, as you as you can imagine, it that's a, um, that attenuates IR energy, so it's no good in those in those conditions. But yeah, just I just didn't find it that that good. I mean, one of the other good things it could do, of course, is um, thermal queuing. So I was an aggressor pilot uh, later. So by that, in in RAF pylons, that's flying Red Baron type mission. So a basic threat emulation, nothing to the aggressor level um, that you hear about at Nellis or whatever. But um, you know basically being able to engage the the formation in a safe safe manner to, to kind of um, stimulate threat reactions that were appropriate so did they do the right thing for a beam engagement stern engagement, and, and basic stuff like that but the flow was very good for um, trying to get tally tally too so you're rolling in with a height split for safety as you as you approach the the, the track line that the, the pair of the four ship are flying but you could tip in from height and have your head of a sleigh pointed where where they're supposed to be and then the thermal cues would be jumping around the uh the engine so that could help you get tally okay there's tally one right if they're in card they're, the the leader of wingman is going to be over there or over there and you could start to, to pick up the rest of the formation mm. based on the permutations of different formations they could be flying so that was the other great thing about the fleur in, in my opinion um yeah just not i'm not sure how the how it was projected on the strike. Maybe it was just a better fidelity, or maybe it was just me. I don't know.
0: So, so you are you've explained the rationale for the GR4 upgrade and that covote low level um, capability. Does that suggest then you were still doing a lot of low level flying, even though? You know, there's the old adage, isn't there, about sort of training for the last war that you fought in the last. Mm-hmm. war We fought. We were doing everything at medium altitude, and it wasn't particularly demanding. And then we went and and sort of got involved. I guess this was more towards the end of your time uh, on a front line squadron. At least, you know, we were in um, Afghanistan, and, and none of that was low level. But so it suggests that you were doing some low level. I, I wondered. And maybe what we'll do is we'll break after this, and we'll do a part three if you're up for it. Where we'll come yep. back and we'll talk about you've already dropped a hint about your ejection, um, but <laughs> but one thing we haven't talked about is the fact you were also a SEAD a pilot uh, in the GR4. The GR4 could fly the um, uh, sort of well Weasel mission, uh, carried the alarm um, anti-radiation yep. missile. We haven't talked about any of that. So for anybody who's listening, thinking why would I tune into part three? That's why you would tune into part three because. Because Nick will talk about those things, but but before we do that, could you talk a little bit about using the aeroplane and the TF system? Did you do a lot of manual TF? Was it always manual TF? Was it auto TF? What capabilities did the aeroplane have in 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 that regime?
1: Um, so, of course, when that uh, the aircraft first came into service as the G1, it was really um, designed around the terrain following radar system coupled to the autopilot, which allowed allowed you to set. Uh, hard medium and soft rides and, and different set clearance heights or you know, effectively the height you fly above the, the terrain from 1500 down to 200 feet. Um, and that was with, as I say, with the autopilot coupled. So you could disconnect the autopilot and you'd have a flight director prompt telling you to climb or, or descend based on the terrain it was seeing in front of you. Um, very common intensive, uh, generally speaking, the backseater would have his uh, radar bore sighted and would be dealing with longer range terrain contacts that he would then hand off to the front seat at about five or six miles that was when it would start to paint on the eScope in the front so for, for e-scope think uh looking at the airplane with the terrain in front of it from the side like a cross-section view um, and it basically allowed allowed the pilot to anticipate the flight director commands you were going to see there were a couple of um lines depicted one was the zero command line which if ter- terrain penetrated you should expect to see a, um, a response from the aircraft now the shape of that line would be determined by how fast you're flying or how hard the ride is that you've got set or how low you want to fly so clearly if you if you wanted to fly 500 foot rather than 200 foot then the aircraft needs to climb earlier and if you're soft doing a soft ride then again it needs to climb earlier at less g to achieve the terrain separation so the sort of commentary might be okay, got a ridge at uh, ten miles uh, ridge at five miles and at that point I would say in the front seat, yeah okay, I got that on the escope and then as you get close maybe penetration at two miles aircraft responds so you'd see the the autopilot command a, a climb because most of the time we have the autopilot connected and then the uh, the aircraft would climb and when the the terrain response went below the SIRA command line. You say demand satisfied. You'd expect the aircraft to start to bunt over to achieve the set clearance height. You've got on over the top of the ridge. So that's how, that's how that that eScope should go. Um, the other line on that e-scope is called the uh, the Cram, which is clearance range ahead monitor. Bad things were happening if if the terrain response went through that uh the aircraft should have responded by that that point and and so generally speaking you know it, it might jolt itself into life and do something about it or you might be forced to do um, an emergency low-level pull-up the sort of situations where that might happen would be in sand or snow sometimes the the terrain following railroad didn't see snow quite as well or sand quite as well so that, that might have been situations which i have seen where it, um, Day VMC we had the TF in, in in the desert and it would have flown us at a sort of ridge so I had to um, had to sort of disconnect that. But the, in certain areas you might choose to increase the um, set clearance height for that. Um, other, other com really was reassurance for the the navigator that the right modes were engaged. Um, so we would be talking about T dot, e dot, and um, five cells. So the T shows that you've got the flight director part of the autopilot connected to the TFR, not a cruise mode, just for maintaining straight and level. Um, so the the, the T says that the dot is that it's in showing that the flight directors uh, engaged engage and the autopilot's engaged. The E dot is a test pulse on the um uh, on the E-scope and, and it kind of was displayed every time the scanner hits hit one under the stops. Five cells was to do with the autopilot. Um, Moding which was depicted in the picture that you can see over over your shoulder. Steve, the the left hand glare shield had had a row of autopilot selection modes, which include the the terrain following radar. So the the backseater could kind of peer over the side of the ejection seat, and with practice he knew with the pattern of green lights illuminated that he was Mm -hmm. expecting to see. That's cool. So that's the the, the kind of the basic mode mode of operation for the GR1 and GR4 in, in, in TF operations. The beauty of the TFR also allowed us to gain experience of the phenomena that you see under night vision goggles without having to miss the ground. So, um, we'll, we'll worry about that. So, the, I understand for um, Harrier and Jaguar guys, they didn't have this. So, they would fly the route by day and then fly the route at maybe a thousand feet and and then sort of step it down. Um, and generally, in you know, be obviously. Um, forced to fly on nights with good illumination with a good good moon so we talk about millilux levels you know anything above 10 was pretty good but we could be flying in really dark nights down at one millilux half a millilux when you're really relying on on, on cultural lighting so street lights that kind of boost the light levels because there's no moon or it's obscured by cloud or something like that so it was a great stepping stone to getting to the um the fully manual night vision goggle based visual flying at low level, which was was brilliant. It was very challenging, but very rewarding, and and so the the gr4 upgrade Bridged allowed you to bridge the gap between that manual flying and the fully coupled terrain following that that was done by the uh, the gr1 all the time. Um, And and so it would go like this pretty much. You you might get yourself um, Step down on the terrain following down to kind of a peacetime uh 250 foot set clearance height. And then the Hotas allowed you to disconnect the autopilot, um, turn off the flight director and put the TF to standby. And that would leave a certain pattern of lights on the glare shield. So there you are, then you're flying, you know, just regular manual flying, but obviously on the goggles at night. So let's say that you go under a cloud bank and and the, the illumination illumination levels deteriorate and you're starting to find it hard to see up ahead. Well, if you need to do that, you could just using one of the buttons on the on the hotest, get the T F transmitting again, look at the E scope and go, Right, it it is that terrain penetrating the zero command line? Do I need to be climbing right now? Ideally you'd probably put the flight director up as well and it would say how much to climb. But you could then um manually terrain follow using using the, the cues from the autopilot and from the terrain following radar and as soon as you cleared that ridge you could then um, put everything back to standby and you're covert again um, but if the weather's really rubbish and and you can't well, you weren't supposed to do this in peacetime uh, because of airspace rules and sort of night weather limits but um you know if the weather was really poor then you just fully engage the um terrain following radar and just punch through it Get out the other side, take it out, and you're back into manual flying. the The issues were with the terrain-following radars that the aircraft could only turn at a certain um, rate, so the turn radius with the terrain-following radar engaged was wider. And the 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 mission planning system allowed you to select that. So depending on your your planned ground speed, whether you made it a visual turn or a terrain-following turn, then the the radius turn could be quite significant so if you're hand flying it just basically meant rather than droning around a 30 degree bank turn or something like that you 45 degree bank turn you just delay the turn and then fly a visual 60 degree 70 degree turn to to intercept the the originally planned outbound track from that waypoint so um a great a great system but there were there were dragons and and the dragons were really about correct sequence of um, switchology so If you were flying around with the TF in standby, you had to get the TF transmitting first, then uh, select the flight director. You'd get the T in the HUD and the flight director dot and then put the the autopilot in. If you did not put the TF uh, on first, but put the flight director up and then engage the autopilot, you've got the autopilot in a cruise mode, which is just used for medium level. You're gonna fly straight into the ridges in front of you. Um, So getting that right, was really important Uh, and that was something that was really um, emphasized in terms of the um, the CRM. So yeah that that, I mean that's the kind of the GR4 upgrade in a nutshell what it really gave for you in terms of the covert EO um, uh, ingress capability because you could find targets on the flare as well and engage them without broadcasting on the radar as long as you could see them visually you could fire the laser uh, as the height sensor, having put the reticle over the target from the fr- from the back seat and, and solve your bombing triangle that way for, for dumb weapons. So, um, yeah, it, you know, it, it was great. And obviously this um, 1553 data bus that we've talked about, but the hardware, the aircraft itself, hadn't the airframe, the engines, that sort of stuff hadn't really changed.
0: So what, what was the scenario then, the, the specific scenario that the RAF was envisaging when it, came up with this gr4 capability then um that you were going to go sort of marauding across um you know the modern day equivalent of the folder gap looking for armor targets on on your own and and engage them in the dead of night
1: i think the main main thing that was likely to require the the covert ingress was the capability of tfr jamming um and um I think, you know, to recognise that if you've got your TF illuminating, that you're going to have people aware that you're coming and where you're coming from. So just that ability to to manoeuvre. Um, when I was at the end of my first tour, there a small car of people were cleared to uh, manually uh, NVG, but a lot of the lighting in the aircraft wasn't compliant and that could give issues with the goggles and things like that. And, and there wasn't the, the HOTAS integration for the tf so plugging the tfr in and disengaging it would all have been through the glare shield controls so the last thing you need to be doing is like okay weather's getting rather poor can't quite see what's going on then shifting your focus from the goggles to close in uh, maybe some lighting that's not EO compatible getting the right switch selections in a hurry and getting it engaged in a safe and timely manner That, that that would have been a lot more challenging in the gr1 so i think it's simply a fact that the requirement had been written towards the end of the Cold War, and it just took quite some time to um, to get it procured and into service. Um, that by the time we got it, and I flew I my first GR4 right at the end of my my time on six one seven, so it was two thousand. But even then, the Cold War was kind of long gone, um, and 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 that capability. You know, it's a it's a fair question to ask, you know, what what's the relevance of it? But fortunately, a lot of the smart weapon employment came with it. Hmm. I, I remember that flight that I did because the aircraft had come straight from Wharton. The harmonisation of the radar and everything was spot on. So the, uh, uh, the I was flying with a very good um, uh, navigator who'd flown everything from Vulcans to Tornado via the Buccaneer. He was a weapons instructor and, uh, yeah, he, he got a great mark on the target and the, the bomb was a DH, um, a direct hit. So the harmonization was super tight, and it was just great when it's come out of the factory. Everything worked as per the brochure. It was lovely.
0: F- final question for me then before we before we wrap up this part, then, Nick. Um, you talk in a very uh, casual way about um, turning everything off looking through the night vision goggles if it gets a bit dark um or you go under a cloud bank or whatever and you lose your illumination you just put the tf back on look at the e-scope make sure that you know if it's going through the clearance plane that you're maneuvering and maybe turn on the flight director if you want to know how much you've got to maneuver by in order to, to miss the ridge um is that the level of um sort of capability and competence and comfort that you you would get to operate the system with i mean to me that sounds scary you're you're doing that at night um Mm. and there's a set of steps you've got to go through there's the possibility that if you screw up the hotas you're going to turn the airplane into uh you know it's going to fly straight into the hill because it's in the cruise mode rather than flying the tf um you know is that part of just being a, a tornado guy that you have to just take it with that level of coolness um did you ever get comfortable with it were you uncomfortable with it
1: Um, I think I try to uh, engage the the TFR so um, by day and and try to go through that switch selection you know just make it good habit patterns Um, and when I was doing pilot checks on people I would potentially get them to do that by day just to practice it I mean there was a currency before you night flew you should have been to TFR current by day and I seem to remember the currency lasted 30 days. So it's like anything, the building block approach, crawl, walk, run. So let's do it by day. And then, then we move on to doing it by night. And if you practice by day and, and you practice it often enough, I always made sure the initial engagement had to be via the glare shield. And then you'd step down the, um, the set clearance height with the red alt as well and get yourself down. But I just made sure that whenever I could use the um, the hotel that I did use it and, um, and just became really... Um, comfortable with it that way. But I think it's like anything, if you became casual, you thought you couldn't mess it up, then you're more likely to mess it up. But as always, it's if you've dug yourself a hole, it's the important thing is to know how to get yourself out of it. And the answer to that was there was an instinctive cutout paddle switch on the front of the stick, which you, you would disconnect everything. So you would just um hit that instinctive cutout paddle switch and and pull up and then make sure you did the right the, the a full re-engagement through the glare shield controls. Um and um yeah that was that was the way way to go. So um I just yeah, night flying on just the TFR with all the autopilot uh, connected was quite mundane. It was won or lost in the plan. If the plan was solid and you got your timing reference points in the contract sorted then it was a it was a non-event generally speaking you'd fly the route it was an exercise in keeping the time early indications um centered of course you know you, on one leg you've got a 20 uh, knot crosswind but you you need to anticipate if you're about to turn into that 20 knot crosswind especially if you know that the next leg is an acceleration as well so you know it's just it's that kind of um air picture and just thinking ahead that that was required but you know flying manual mvgs was never dull because it was just so much more challenging so much more fun um the reality of trying to visually acquire a target on mvgs and put a dumb weapon or an unguided weapon onto it i think that's it's another issue altogether unless it was a pretty sizable target but of course with the, with the advent of either sort of brimstone or uh, enhanced paveway to late uh, um gps guided lgbs which you could toss onto to a set of coordinates the thing was really about getting in uh, making the most of all the terrain that you could see flying up of the earth in a way that perhaps the, the um, TFR plan didn't allow you to, you know, but you couldn't find, you'd had to choose a mean line in advance. You couldn't find every crease in the mm-hmm. valley, which you could do with the with the manual flying. So, um, yeah, just, you know, as they say, train hard, fight easy, and you know, the, more, the more, you, more you train, the more comfortable you get, but be comfortable, don't get casual.
0: Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.